0: chapter 16 of the deer slayer this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the deer slayer by james fenimore cooper chapter 16 i hear thee babbling to the vale of sunshine and of flowers but unto me thou bringst a tale of visionary hours wordsworth One discovery mentioned at the close of the preceding chapter was of great moment in the eyes of Deerslayer and his friend. In the first place there was the danger almost the certainty that Hutter and Hurry would make a fresh attempt on this camp, should they awake and ascertain its position. Then there was the increased risk of landing to bring off Hist, and there were the general uncertainty and additional hazards that must follow from the circumstance that their enemies had begun to change their positions. As the Delaware was aware that the hour was near when he ought to repair to the rendezvous, he no longer thought of trophies torn from his foes, and one of the first things arranged between him and his associate was to permit the two others to sleep on, lest they should disturb the execution of their plans by substituting some of their own. The ark moved slowly, and it would have taken fully a quarter of an hour to reach the point, at the rate at which they were going thus affording time for a little forethought. The Indians, in the wish to conceal their fire from those who were thought to be still in the castle, had placed it so near the southern side of the point as to render it extremely difficult to shut it in by the bushes, though Deerslayer varied the direction of the scow both to the right and to the left, in the hope of being able to effect that object. "'There's one advantage, Judith, in finding that fire so near the water,' he said while executing these little manoeuvres, since it shows the Mingoes believe we are in the hut, and our coming on em from this quarter will be an unlooked-for event. But it's lucky Harry March and your father are asleep, else we should have em prowling after scalps again. Ha! There! The bushes are beginning to shut in the fire, and now it can't be seen at all." Deerslayer waited a little to make sure that he had at last gained the desired position when he gave the signal agreed on, and Chingachgook let go the grapnel and lowered the sail. The situation in which the ark now lay had its advantages and its disadvantages. The fire had been hid by shearing towards the shore, and the latter was nearer, perhaps, than was desirable. Still, the water was known to be very deep farther off in the lake, and anchoring in deep water, under the circumstances in which the party was placed, was to be avoided, if possible. It was also believed no raft could be within miles, and though the trees in the darkness appeared almost to overhang the scow, it would not be easy to get off to her without using a boat. The intense darkness that prevailed so close in with the forest, too, served as an effectual screen, and so long as care was had not to make a noise, there was little or no danger of being detected. All these things Deerslayer pointed out to Judith, instructing her as to the course she was to follow in the event of an alarm. For it was thought to the last degree inexpedient to arouse the sleepers unless it might be in the greatest emergency. And now Judith, we understand one another. It is time the sarpent and I had taken to the canoe, the hunter concluded. The star has not risen yet, it's true, but it soon must, though none of us are likely to be any the wiser for it to night on account of the clouds. However. "'Hist has a ready mind, and she's one of them that doesn't always need to have a thing afore her to see it. I'll warrant you she'll not be either two minutes or two feet out of the way, unless them jealous vagabonds the mingos have taken the alarm and put her as a stool-pigeon to catch us, or have hid her away in order to prepare her mind for a Huron instead of a Mohican husband.' "'Deerslayer,' interrupted the girl earnestly, "'this is a most dangerous service. Why do you go on it at all?' Anan, "'Why, well, you know, gal, we go to bring off Hist. The sarpent's betrothed—the maid he means to marry—as soon as we get back to the tribe.' "'That is all right for the Indian. But you do not mean to marry Hist. You are not betrothed. And why should two risk their lives and liberties to do that which one can just as well perform?' "'Ah! now I understand you, Judith. Yes, now I begin to take the idee. You think as hist as the sarpent's betrothed, as they call it, and not mine, it's altogether his affair, and as one man can paddle a canoe he ought to be left to go after his gal alone. But you forget this is our arnd here on the lake, and it would not tell well to forget an arnd just as the pinch came. Then, if love does count for so much with some people, particularly with young women, friendship counts for something, too, with other some. I dares to say, The Delaware can paddle a canoe by himself, and can bring off hist by himself, and perhaps he would like that quite as well as to have me with him. But he couldn't circumvent circumventions, or stir up an ambushment, or fight with the savages, and get his sweetheart at the same time, as well by himself as if he had a friend with him to depend on, even if that friend is no better than myself. No, no, Judith, you wouldn't desert one that counted on you at such a moment and you can't in reason expect me to do it. I fear—I believe you are right, deerslayer, and yet I wish you were not to go—promise me one thing at least, and that is not to trust yourself among the savages, or to do anything more than to save the girl. That will be enough for once, and with that you ought to be satisfied. Lord bless you, gal! One would think it's Hetty that's talking, and not the quick-witted and wonderful Judith Hutter but fright makes the wise silly, and the strong weak. Yes, I've seen proofs of that, time and again. Well, it's kind and soft-hearted of you, Judith, to feel this concern for a fellow-creature, and I shall always say that you are kind and of true feelings. Let them that envy your good looks tell as many idle stories of you as they may." "'Deer Slayer,' hastily said the girl, interrupting him, though nearly choked by her own emotions, "'do you believe all you hear about a poor motherless girl? Is the foul tongue of Hurry Harry to blast my life? Not it, Judith—not it. I've told Hurry it wasn't manful to backbite them he couldn't win by fair means, and that even an Indian is always tender touching a young woman's good name." "'If I had a brother, he wouldn't dare to do it!' exclaimed Judith, with eyes flashing fire. But finding me without any protector but an old man, whose ears are getting to be as dull as his feelings, he has his way as he pleases. Not exactly that, Judith, no, not exactly that, neither. No man, brother or stranger, would stand by and see as fair a gal as yourself hunted down, without saying a word in her behalf, Hurry's in earnest in wanting to make you his wife, and the little he does let out again you comes more from jealousy, like, than from anything else. Smile on him when he awakes, and squeeze his hand only half as hard as you squeezed mine a bit ago, and my life on it the poor fellow will forget everything but your comeliness. Hot words don't always come from the heart, but oftener from the stomach than anywhere else. Try him, Judith, when he awakes, and see the virtue of a smile." Deerslayer laughed in his own manner as he concluded, and then he intimated to the patient-looking but really impatient Chingachgook his readiness to proceed. As the young man entered the canoe, the girl stood immovable as stone, lost in the musings that the language and manner of the other were likely to produce. The simplicity of the hunter had completely put her at fault, for, in her narrow sphere, Judith was an expert manager of the other sex, though in the present instance she was far more actuated by impulses, in all she had said and done, than by calculation. We shall not deny that some of Judith's reflections were bitter, though the sequel of the tale must be referred to in order to explain how merited, or how keen, were her sufferings. Chingachgook and his pale-faced friend set forth on their hazardous and delicate enterprise, with a coolness and method that would have done credit to men who were on their twentieth instead of being on their first war-path. As suited his relation to the pretty fugitive, in whose service they were engaged, the Indian took his place in the head of the canoe, while Deerslayer guided its movements in the stern. By this arrangement, The former would be the first to land, and, of course, the first to meet his mistress. The latter had taken his post without comment, but in secret influenced by the reflection that one who had so much at stake as the Indian might not possibly guide the canoe with the same steadiness and intelligence as another who had more command of his feelings. From the instant they left the side of the ark, the movements of the two adventurers were like the maneuvers of highly-drilled soldiers who for the first time were called on to meet the enemy in the field. As yet, Chingachgook had never fired a shot in anger, and the debut of his companion in warfare is known to the reader. It is true the Indian had been hanging about his enemy's camp, for a few hours, on his first arrival, and he had even once entered it as related in the last chapter. But no consequences had followed either experiment. Now it was certain that an important result was to be effected or a mortifying failure was to ensue. The rescue, or the continued captivity of Hist, depended on the enterprise. In a word, it was virtually the maiden expedition of these two ambitious young forest soldiers, and while one of them set forth impelled by sentiments that usually carry men so far, both had all their feelings of pride and manhood enlisted in their success. Instead of steering in a direct line to the point, then distant from the ark less than a quarter of a mile, Deerslayer laid the head of his canoe diagonally towards the centre of the lake, with the view to obtain a position from which he might approach the shore, having his enemies in his front only. The spot where Hetty had landed, and where Hist had promised to meet them, moreover, was on the upper side of the projection rather than on the lower, and to reach it would have required the two adventurers to double nearly the whole point, close in with the shore had not this preliminary step been taken. So well was the necessity for this measure understood that Chingachgook quietly paddled on, although it was adopted without consulting him, and apparently was taking him in a direction nearly opposite to that one might think he most wished to go. A few minutes sufficed, however, to carry the canoe the necessary distance, when both the young men ceased paddling, as it were, by instinctive consent, and the boat became stationary. The darkness increased rather than diminished, but it was still possible, from the place where the adventurers lay, to distinguish the outlines of the mountains. In vain did the Delaware turn his head eastward to catch a glimpse of the promised star, for notwithstanding the clouds broke a little near the horizon in that quarter of the heavens, the curtain continued so far drawn as effectually to conceal all behind it. In front, as was known by the formation of land above and behind it, lay the point, at the distance of about a thousand feet. No signs of the castle could be seen, nor could any movement in that quarter of the lake reach the air. The latter circumstance might have been equally owing to the distance, which was several miles, or to the fact that nothing was in motion. As for the ark, though scarcely farther from the canoe than the point, it lay so completely buried in the shadows of the shore, that it would not have been visible even had there been many degrees more of light than actually existed. The adventurers now held a conference in low voices, consulting together as to the probable time. Deerslayer thought it wanted yet some minutes to the rising of the star, while the impatience of the chief caused him to fancy the night further advanced, and to believe that his betrothed was already waiting his appearance on the shore. As might have been expected, the opinion of the latter prevailed and his friend disposed himself to steer for the place of rendezvous. The utmost skill and precaution now became necessary in the management of the canoe. The paddles were lifted and returned to the water in a noiseless manner, and when within a hundred yards of the beach Chingachgook took in his, altogether laying his hand on his rifle in its stead. As they got still more within the belt of darkness that girded the woods, it was seen that they were steering too far north and the course was altered accordingly. The canoe now seemed to move by instinct, so cautious and deliberate were all its motions. Still it continued to advance, until its bows grated on the gravel of the beach, at the precise spot where Hetty had landed, and whence her voice had issued, the previous night, as the ark was passing. There was, as usual, a narrow strand, but bushes fringed the woods, and in most places overhung the water. Chingachgook stepped upon the beach, and cautiously examined it for some distance on each side of the canoe. In order to do this he was often obliged to wade to his knees in the lake, but no hist rewarded his search. When he returned he found his friend also on the shore. They next conferred in whispers, the Indian apprehending that they must have mistaken the place of rendezvous. But Deerslayer thought it was probable they had mistaken the hour. While he was yet speaking, he grasped the arm of the Delaware, caused him to turn his head in the direction of the lake, and pointed towards the summits of the eastern mountains. The clouds had broken a little, apparently behind rather than above the hills, and the evening star was glittering among the branches of a pine. This was every way a flattering omen, and the young men leaned on their rifles, listening intently for the sound of approaching footsteps. Voices they often heard and mingled with them were the suppressed cries of children, and the low but sweet laugh of Indian women. As the Native Americans are habitually cautious, and seldom break out in loud conversation, the adventurers knew by these facts that they must be very near the encampment. It was easy to perceive that there was a fire within the woods, by the manner in which some of the upper branches of the trees were illuminated. But it was not possible where they stood to ascertain exactly how near it was to themselves. Once or twice it seemed as if stragglers from around the fire were approaching the place of rendezvous, but these sounds were either altogether illusion or those who had drawn near returned again without coming to the shore. A quarter of an hour was passed in this state of intense expectation and anxiety when deerslayer proposed that they should circle the point in the canoe and by getting a position close in where the camp could be seen reconnoitre the Indians, and thus enable themselves to form some plausible conjectures for the non-appearance of Hist. The Delaware, however, resolutely refused to quit the spot, reasonably enough offering as a reason the disappointment of the girl, should she arrive in his absence. Deerslayer felt for his friend's concern, and offered to make the circuit of the point by himself, leaving the latter concealed in the bushes to await the occurrence of any fortunate event that might favor his views. With this understanding, then, the parties separated. As soon as Deerslayer was at his post again in the stern of the canoe, he left the shore with the same precautions, and in the same noiseless manner as he had approached it. On this occasion he did not go far from the land, the bushes affording a sufficient cover by keeping as close in as possible. Indeed, it would not have been easy to devise any means more favorable to reconnoitering round an Indian camp than those afforded by the actual state of things. The formation of the point permitted the place to be circled on three of its sides, and the progress of the boat was so noiseless as to remove any apprehensions from an alarm through sound. The most practised and guarded foot might stir a bunch of leaves or snap a dried stick in the dark, but a bark canoe could be made to float over the surface of smooth water, almost with the instinctive readiness and certainly with the noiseless movements of an aquatic bird. Deerslayer had got nearly in a line between the camp and the ark before he caught a glimpse of the fire. This came upon him suddenly, and a little unexpectedly, at first causing an alarm, lest he had incautiously ventured within the circle of light it cast. But perceiving at a second glance that he was certainly safe from detection, so long as the Indians kept near the center of the illumination, he brought the canoe to a state of rest in the most favorable position he could find, and commenced his observations. We have written much, but in vain, concerning this extraordinary being, if the reader requires now to be told, that, untutored as he was in the learning of the world, and simple as he ever showed himself to be in all matters touching the subtleties of conventional taste, he was a man of strong, native, poetical feeling. He loved the woods for their freshness, their sublime solitudes, their vastness, and the impress that they everywhere bore of the divine hand of their Creator. He seldom moved through them without pausing to dwell on some peculiar beauty that gave him pleasure, though seldom attempting to investigate the causes, and never did a day pass without his communing in spirit, and this, too, without the aid of forms or language, with the infinite source of all he saw, felt, and beheld. Thus constituted, in a moral sense, and of a steadiness that no danger could appall, or any crisis disturb, It is not surprising that the hunter felt a pleasure at looking on the scene he now beheld that momentarily caused him to forget the object of his visit this will more fully appear when we describe it the canoe lay in front of a natural vista not only through the bushes that lined the shore but of the trees also that afforded a clear view of the camp it was by means of this same opening that the light had been first seen from the ark in consequence of their recent change of ground The Indians had not yet retired to their huts, but had been delayed by their preparations, which included lodging as well as food. A large fire had been made, as much to answer the purpose of torches as for the use of their simple cookery, and at this precise moment it was blazing high and bright, having recently received a large supply of dried brush. The effect was to illuminate the arches of the forest. And to render the whole area occupied by the camp as light as if hundreds of tapers were burning. Most of the toil had ceased, and even the hungriest child had satisfied its appetite. In a word, the time was that moment of relaxation and general indolence which is apt to succeed a hearty meal, and when the labors of the day have ended. The hunters and the fishermen had been totally successful, and food, that one great requisite of savage life being abundant, every other care appeared to have subsided in the sense of enjoyment dependent on this all-important fact. Deerslayer saw at a glance that many of the warriors were absent. His acquaintance Rivenoak, however, was present, being seated in the foreground of a picture that Salvator Rosa would have delighted to draw, his swarthy features illuminated as much by pleasure as by the torch-like flame, while he showed another of the tribe one of the elephants that had caused so much sensation among his people. A boy was looking over his shoulder, in dull curiosity, completing the group. More in the background, eight or ten warriors lay half recumbent on the ground, or sat with their backs reclining against trees, so many types of indolent repose. Their arms were near them all, sometimes leaning against the same trees as themselves, or were lying across their bodies in careless preparation. But the group that most attracted the attention of Deerslayer was that composed of the women and children all the females appeared to be collected together, and almost as a matter of course their young were near them. The former laughed and chatted in their rebuked and quiet manner, though one who knew the habits of the people might have detected that everything was not going on in its usual train. Most of the young women seemed to be light-hearted enough, but one old hag was seated apart with a watchful soured aspect, which the hunter at once knew betokened that some duty of an unpleasant character had been assigned her by the chiefs. What that duty was he had no means of knowing, but he felt satisfied it must be in some measure connected with her own sex—the aged among the women generally being chosen for such offices and no other. As a matter of course Deerslayer looked eagerly and anxiously for the form of hist. She was nowhere visible, though the light penetrated to considerable distances in all directions around the fire. Once or twice he started, as he thought he recognized her laugh, but his ears were deceived by the soft melody that is so common to the Indian female voice. At length the old woman spoke loud and angrily, and then he caught a glimpse of one or two dark figures in the background of trees, which turned as if obedient to the rebuke, and walked more within the circle of the light. A young warrior's form first came fairly into view, then followed by two youthful females, one of whom proved to be the Delaware girl. Deerslayer now comprehended it all. Hist was watched—possibly by her young companion, certainly by the old woman. The youth was probably some suitor of either her or her companion, but even his discretion was distrusted under the influence of his admiration—the known vicinity of those who might be supposed to be her friends and the arrival of a strange red man on the lake had induced more than the usual care, and the girl had not been able to slip away from those who watched her, in order to keep her appointment. Deerslayer traced her uneasiness by her attempting once or twice to look up through the branches of the trees, as if endeavouring to get glimpses of the star she had herself named as the sign for meeting. All was vain, however, And after strolling about the camp a little longer, in affected indifference, the two girls quitted their male escort, and took seats among their own sex. As soon as this was done the old sentinel changed her place to one more agreeable to herself—a certain proof that she had hitherto been exclusively on watch. Deerslayer now felt greatly at a loss how to proceed. He well knew that Chingachgook could never be persuaded to return to the Ark without making some desperate effort for the recovery of his mistress, and his own generous feelings well disposed him to aid in such an undertaking. He thought he saw the signs of an intention among the females to retire for the night, and should he remain, and the fire continue to give out its light, he might discover the particular hut or arbour under which Hist reposed, a circumstance that would be of infinite use in their future proceedings." Should he remain, however, much longer where he was, there was great danger that the impatience of his friend would drive him into some act of imprudence. At each instant, indeed, he expected to see the swarthy form of the Delaware appearing in the background, like the tiger prowling around the fold. Taking all things into consideration, therefore, he came to the conclusion that it would be better to rejoin his friend, and endeavor to temper his impetuosity by some of his own coolness and discretion. It required but a minute or two to put this plan in execution, the canoe returning to the Strand some ten or fifteen minutes after it had left it. Contrary to his expectations, perhaps, Deerslayer found the Indian at his post, from which he had not stirred, fearful that his betrothed might arrive during his absence. A conference followed, in which Chingachgook was made acquainted with the state of things in the camp. When Hist named the point as the place of meeting, It was with the expectation of making her escape from the old position, and of repairing to a spot that she expected to find without any occupants. But the sudden change of localities had disconcerted all her plans. A much greater degree of vigilance than had been previously required was now necessary, and the circumstance that an aged woman was on watch also denoted some special grounds of alarm. All these considerations, and many more that will readily suggest themselves to the reader, were briefly discussed before the young men came to any decision. The occasion, however, being one that required acts instead of words, the course to be pursued was soon chosen. Disposing of the canoe in such a manner that Hist must see it should she come to the place of meeting previously to their return, the young men looked to their arms and prepared to enter the wood. The whole projection into the lake contained about two acres of land and the part that formed the point and on which the camp was placed did not compose a surface of more than half that size. It was principally covered with oaks, which, as is usual in the American forests, grew to a great height without throwing out a branch, and then arched in a dense and rich foliage. Beneath, except the fringe of thick bushes along the shore, there was very little underbrush though in consequence of their shape the trees were closer together than is common in regions where the axe has been freely used resembling tall straight rustic columns upholding the usual canopy of leaves the surface of the land was tolerably even but it had a small rise near its centre which divided it into a northern and southern half on the latter the hurons had built their fire profiting by the formation to conceal it from their enemies who it will be remembered were supposed to be in the castle, which bore northerly. A brook also came brawling down the sides of the adjacent hills, and found its way into the lake on the southern side of the point. It had cut for itself a deep passage through some of the higher portions of the ground, and in later days, when this spot has become subjected to the uses of civilization by its windings and shaded banks, it has become no mean accessory in contributing to the beauty of the place. This brook lay west of the encampment, and its waters found their way into the great reservoir of that region on the same side, and quite near to the spot chosen for the fire. All these peculiarities, so far as circumstances allowed, have been noted by Deerslayer, and explained to his friend. The reader will understand that the little rise in the ground that lay behind the Indian encampment greatly favoured the secret advance of the two adventurers it prevented the light of the fire diffusing itself on the ground directly in the rear although the land fell away towards the water so as to leave what might be termed the left or eastern flank of the position unprotected by this covering we have said unprotected though that is not properly the word since the knoll behind the huts and the fire offered a cover for those who were now stealthily approaching rather than any protection to the indians Deerslayer did not break through the fringe of bushes immediately abreast of the canoe, which might have brought him too suddenly within the influence of the light, since the hillock did not extend to the water. But he followed the beach northerly, until he got nearly on the opposite side of the tongue of land, which brought him under the shelter of the low acclivity and consequently more in the shadow. As soon as the friends emerged from the bushes, they stopped to reconnoitre. The fire was still blazing behind the little ridge, casting its light upward into the tops of the trees, producing an effect that was more pleasing than advantageous. Still the glare had its uses, for while the background was in obscurity, the foreground was in strong light, exposing the savages and concealing their foes. Profiting by the latter circumstance, the young men advanced cautiously towards the ridge, deerslayer in front, for he insisted on this arrangement lest the Delaware should be led by his feelings into some indiscretion. It required but a moment to reach the foot of the little ascent, and then commenced the most critical part of the enterprise. Moving with exceeding caution, and trailing his rifle both to keep its barrel out of view and in readiness for service, the hunter put foot before foot, until he got sufficiently high to overlook the summit, his own head being alone brought into the light. Chingachgook was at his side, and both paused to take another close examination of the camp. In order, however, to protect themselves against any straggler in the rear, they placed their bodies against the trunk of an oak, standing on the side next the fire. The view that Deerslayer now obtained of the camp was exactly the reverse of that he had perceived from the water. The dim figures which he had formerly discovered must have been on the summit of the ridge a few feet in advance of the spot where he was now posted and around it were seated on logs thirteen warriors, which accounted for all whom he had seen from the canoe. They were conversing with much earnestness among themselves, the image of the elephant passing from hand to hand. The first burst of savage wonder had abated, and the question now under discussion was the probable existence, the history, and the habits of so extraordinary an animal. We have not leisure to record the opinions of these rude men on a subject so consonant to their lives and experience. But little is hazarded in saying that they were quite as plausible and far more ingenious than half the conjectures that precede the demonstrations of science. However much they may have been at fault as to their conclusions and inferences, it is certain that they discussed the questions with a zealous and most undivided attention. For the time being all else was forgotten, and our adventurers could not have approached at a more fortunate instant. The females were collected near each other, much as Deerslayer had last seen them, nearly in a line between the place where he now stood and the fire. The distance from the oak against which the young men leaned, and the warriors, was about thirty yards. The women may have been half that number of yards nigher. The latter, indeed, were so near as to make the utmost circumspection as to motion and noise indispensable. Although they conversed in their low, soft voices, it was possible in the profound stillness of the woods even to catch passages of the discourse, and the light-hearted laugh that escaped the girls might occasionally have reached the canoe. Deerslayer felt that the tremolo that passed through the frame of his friend when the latter first caught the sweet sounds that issued from the plump, pretty lips of hist. He even laid a hand on the shoulder of the Indian as a sort of admonition to command himself as the conversation grew more earnest, each leaned forward to listen. "'The Hurons have more curious beasts than that,' said one of the girls, contemptuously, for like the men they conversed of the elephant and his qualities. The Delawares will think this creature wonderful, but to-morrow no Huron tongue will talk of it. Our young men will find him if the animals dare to come near our wigwams.' This was in fact addressed to Watawa though she who spoke uttered the words with an assumed diffidence and humility that prevented her looking at the other. "'The Delawares are so far from letting such creatures come into their country,' returned Hist, that no one has even seen their images there. Their young men would frighten away the images as well as the beasts.' "'The Delaware young men—the Nation is women—even the deer walk when they hear their hunters coming. Who has ever heard the name of a young Delaware warrior?' This was said in good-humour and with a laugh, but it was also said bitingly, that hist so felt it, was apparent by the spirit betrayed in her answer. "'Who has ever heard the name of a young Delaware?' she repeated earnestly. Taminond, himself. Though now as old as the pines on the hill, or as the eagles in the air, was once young, his name was heard from the great salt lake to the sweet waters of the west. What is the family of Uncas? Where is there another as great? though the pale-faces have ploughed up its grates and trodden on its bones. Do the eagles fly as high? Is the deer as swift, or the panther as brave? Is there no young warrior of that race? Let the Huron maidens open their eyes wider, and they may see one called Chingachgook, who is as stately as a young ash, and as tough as the hickory." As the girl used her figurative language and told her companions to open their eyes and they would see the Delaware, deerslayer thrust his fingers into the sides of his friend, and indulged in a fit of his hearty benevolent laughter. The other smiled. But the language of the speaker was too flattering, and the tones of her voice too sweet for him to be led away by any accidental coincidence, however ludicrous. The speech of Hist produced a retort, and the dispute, though conducted in good humor and without any of the coarse violence of tone and gesture that often impairs the charms of the sex in what is called civilized life, grew warm and slightly clamorous. In the midst of this scene the Delaware caused his friend to stoop so as completely to conceal himself, and then he made a noise so closely resembling the little chirrup of the smallest species of the American Squirrel that Deerslayer himself, though he had heard the imitation a hundred times, actually thought it came from one of the little animals skipping about over his head. The sound is so familiar in the woods that none of the Hurons paid it the least attention hist however instantly ceased talking and sat motionless still she had sufficient self-command to abstain from turning her head she had heard the signal by which her lover so often called her from the wigwam to the stolen interview and it came over her senses and her heart as the serenade affects the maiden in the land of song from that moment chingachgook felt certain that his presence was known this was affecting much and he could now hope for a bolder line of conduct on the part of his mistress than she might dare to adopt under an uncertainty of his situation. It left no doubt of her endeavouring to aid him in his effort to release her. Deerslayer arose as soon as the signal was given, and though he had never held that sweet communion which is known only to lovers, he was not slow to detect the great change that had come over the manner of the girl. She still affected to dispute, though it was no longer with spirit and ingenuity, but what she said was uttered more as a lure to draw her antagonists on to an easy conquest than with any hopes of succeeding herself. Once or twice, it is true, her native readiness suggested a retort, or an argument that raised a laugh and gave her a momentary advantage. But these little sallies, the offspring of mother wit, served the better to conceal her real feelings, and to give to the triumph of the other party a more natural air than it might have possessed without them. At length, the disputants became wearied, and they rose in a body as if about to separate. It was now that Hist, for the first time, ventured to turn her face in the direction whence the signal had come. In doing this, her movements were natural but guarded, and she stretched her arm and yawned, as if overcome with a desire to sleep. The chirrup was again heard, and the girl felt satisfied as to the position of her lover, though the strong light in which she herself was placed and the comparative darkness in which the adventurers stood prevented her from seeing their heads the only portions of their forms that appeared above the ridge at all the tree against which they were posted had a dark shadow cast upon it by the intervention of an enormous pine that grew between it and the fire a circumstance which alone would have rendered objects within its cloud invisible at any distance this deerslayer well knew and it was one of the reasons why he had selected this particular tree the moment was near when it became necessary for Hist to act. She was to sleep in a small hut, or bower, that had been built near where she stood, and her companion was the aged hag already mentioned. Once within the hut, with this sleepless old woman stretched across the entrance, as was her nightly practice, the hope of escape was nearly destroyed, and she might at any moment be summoned to her bed. Luckily, at this instant, one of the warriors called to the old woman by name, and bade her bring him water to drink. There was a delicious spring on the northern side of the point, and the hag took a gourd from a branch, and summoning Hist to her side, she moved towards the summit of the ridge, intending to descend and cross the point to the natural fountain. All this was seen and understood by the adventurers, and they fell back into the obscurity, concealing their persons by trees until the two females had passed them. In walking, Hist was held tightly by the hand as she moved by the tree that hid Chingachgook and his friend the former felt for his tomahawk, with the intention to bury it in the brain of the woman. But the other saw the hazard of such a measure, since a single scream might bring all the warriors upon them, and he was averse to the act on considerations of humanity. His hand, therefore, prevented the blow. Still, as the two moved past, the chirrup was repeated, and the Huron woman stopped and faced the tree whence the sounds seemed to proceed standing at the moment within six feet of her enemies. She expressed her surprise that a squirrel should be in motion at so late an hour, and said it boded evil. Hist answered that she had heard the same squirrel three times within the last twenty minutes, and that she supposed it was waiting to obtain some of the crumbs left from the late supper. This explanation appeared satisfactory, and they moved towards the spring, the men following stealthily and closely. The gourd was filled, and the old woman was hurrying back, her hand still grasping the wrist of the girl, when she was suddenly seized so violently by the throat as to cause her to release her captive, and to prevent her making any other sound than a sort of gurgling, suffocating noise. The serpent passed his arm around the waist of his mistress, and dashed through the bushes with her on the north side of the point. Here he immediately turned along the beach, and ran towards the canoe. A more direct course could have been taken but it might have led to a discovery of the place of embarking. Deerslayer kept playing on the throat of the old woman like the keys of an organ, occasionally allowing her to breathe, and then compressing his fingers again nearly to strangling. The brief intervals for breath, however, were well improved, and the hag succeeded in letting out a screech or two that served to alarm the camp. The tramp of the warriors, as they sprang from the fire, was plainly audible, and at the next moment three or four of them appeared on the top of the ridge, drawn against the background of light, resembling the dim shadows of the phantasmagoria. It was now quite time for the hunter to retreat. Tripping up the heels of his captive, and giving her throat a parting squeeze, quite as much in resentment at her indomitable efforts to sound the alarm as from any policy, he left her on her back, and moved towards the bushes, his rifle at a poise, and his head over his shoulders like a lion at bay end of chapter 16 recording by bill borst